This podcast is brought to you by Hound. Hound comments on style violations and GitHub pull requests, allowing you and your team to better review and maintain a clean code base. Try it now at houndci.com. <laughs> Quick show. Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. <laughs> I removed database cleaner from a bunch of projects lately. Ah, you switched to system tests. So I didn't switch to system tests. You just stopped using the database. No. So this is what confuses me. It works fine through several are these test runs. Not integration tests. They are our spec feature tests, and they work just fine. I'm pretty sure your server runs in another thread in those. That's what one Maybe would think. Not. Maybe not. Maybe the stuff that got done for system tests got done in a way that affects feature tests. That's what I was thinking. So, like, I always assumed I would need to switch to system tests for this functionality. And so the RSpec pull request that was opened by at Sam Fippen, I actually tested early on. And I was like, okay, cool. I switched to system tests. I no longer need database cleaner. Cool. And then eventually that pull request went through some changes and got merged. And a bunch of people, I, I like, subscribed to it because I commented on it. And I was curious about when it closed. And... um a bunch of people did you use tell me when it closes.com. I did use tell me when it closes.com, but I'm also still subscribed to it because I had also I had commented on it and did not unsubscribe. Sure. Um, but a bunch of people were commenting saying like even after it closed we're saying like hey, when's this going to be in a release? I cuz I want to use it I, I want to use it in this. I want to get rid of database cleaner. I want to do this. I want to do the other thing. And somebody posted who is not an RSpec maintainer but was like this works fine. You can just you, you can do this with feature specs today. And so I was like, is this true? And so I took Hub, which is one of our internal projects, and it has, you know, some tests that are driven by Capybara WebKit and some tests that are not. And first I upgraded to Rails 5.1, and then I removed Database Cleaner, and all the tests pass. And I was like, hmm, interesting. So I pushed it up to GitHub so that it would run on CircleCI, expecting, like, maybe in that environment things will, things will fail. And they didn't fail, and it's been over a week now, and things are just running fine. So I think... So I have, I have two questions. Yeah. Did you try on Rails 5.0 removing database cleaner? That's a good question. I should do that. I should like So I'm actually back. curious if just your tests are passing because your tests are written in such a way that they work regardless of what existing data was already in the database. I find that hard to believe that we would not get into a situation where like a page assertion took longer than it took for the transaction to clean up on the back in the background. I guess you don't that would only matter. Maybe we're just writing the tests in a way that it doesn't matter. When would that matter that the data gets cleaned up? Only if I you mean, went back to the database for an assertion. Or if you're asserting, like, expect the page to have one div with this selector. Like, right. if, you, if, you, if, you know, if you had, like, an element for every topic and you were like, expect the page to have one, one div with the topic class on it. If there was right. existing data in the database before the test ran, then it would fail. Oh, right, because now we're never cleaning it out. Yeah, I would find that hard to believe that we're never cleaning it out by anything other than a transaction. I'd really find that. I guess actually, if you if no, yeah, you wouldn't be running in a transaction. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. Well, now I'm really I'm like maybe we just have to do this live on air. <laughs> yeah, so that would be the way to test this. I think is just go back to your your commit where you were on five zero and remove database cleaner and see if the tests fail. Okay, so I've checked out back to uh, a version of the project that's running Active Record five point zero point six. 
well, in Rails 5.0.6 and database cleaner. I will jump into my Rails helper file. And where do we set up database cleaner? Spec support database cleaner or something like that, probably. Probably, yeah. First thing, I'm going to turn on transactional fixtures again. Your test will definitely fail if you turn that on. That's what I want to turn on. I want transactions, right? I mean, that's when I... Did you turn that on in Rails 5.1? Yes. When I removed database cleaner, I turned on transactional fixtures. Okay, if you had transactions turned on and your tests were passing, then yeah, whatever we did definitely affected integration tests as well as system tests because oh, right. otherwise the server should not be able to see any data. Right, correct. So yes, I did turn on the transactions because I was like, I need transactions. Unless you're not creating the data in your test. Are you um, creating the data like by visiting a page on the server? Oh, uh, I don't know if any of the tests are doing that. Here, let's just continue with my <laughs> with my experiment here. Find the database yeah. cleaner finder. Yeah. Let me just comment out everything in the database cleaner file. Okay, so that very exciting work is done. I've commented out the database cleaner configuration. I turned on transactional fixtures, and I'm running the test suite again. It's a two-minute test suite, so we'll insert some music here, and we'll be back <laughs> in two minutes. So yeah, far, so good. This is very exciting. I see a lot of green dots. I'll do the play-by-play -play here. It is being randomized with seed 17891. The green dots are moving across the screen. They're marching, unimpeded by red or yellow. Uh-oh, yeah. two test oh. failures. Okay, well, there you go. Yeah, so it's still running, but I got two Fs. I mean, I didn't run the test suite before to make sure that it worked at this commit, but I'm pretty confident it did. So yeah, I think I'm like 98% sure that it's just fine. And also like a couple other people like Greg, who works on Hound, immediately went and did the same thing after I did it. was like, yeah, it works. It's fine. Yeah, we, the, the stuff that we did that forces a server to use the same connection as the test that's running, that must have been something that affects integration tests in addition to system tests. Yeah. I thought, I thought we did it in a way that only affected system tests, but I guess not. Yeah, so anyway, it appears as though we're running in a post-database cleaner world now, which is exciting, I think. Uh, yeah. Because just transactions, and you can it's faster, and it's better. It's easier to reason about, and you don't have to worry about getting your configuration wrong. Yeah, the way it's implemented is such that the tests are impossible to run in parallel. Oh, great. <laughs> but that was, that was already the case if you, were, if you weren't using transactions. Right. This one is, if nothing else, this approach right. will eventually be able to be made parallel much more easily. In parallel and against the same database. Right. Because approaches to run parallel that I've, I'm familiar with before this were always running against different instances of the database as well. Right. No, I'm talking like literally just run your same test suite, but across, but with four threads and one test at a time per thread instead of one thread. Yeah. And I think that at Sam Fippen was under the same impression that you were because in the blog post where he announced, like, uh, the system test came to RSpec basically yesterday when they released RSpec, 3, RSpec Rails 3.7. Yeah. And in that blog post, he suggests that people move to system tests from feature tests over time because one of the reasons was that you'll be able to take advantage of not having to use something like database cleaner. And I basically reached out to him on our Slack to say, like, hey, this works fine with me on feature tests still. So that's one reason to not worry about it. I, I just also in general, don't think that if you, if you have a thing that's working right now, I wouldn't like migrate your tests from feature tests to system tests. Sure. It's not entire. I mean, it's, it's pretty trivial to do, I guess. Uh, and it would allow you to get rid of some things potentially, but like, I guess you can't use the feature DSL if you use that in your feature tests, because that opts you back into a feature test automatically. So you have to switch to describe and it rather than feature and scenario, if that's a thing you use, mm -hmm. um, and just a few other small things, but 
it just seems like a change for change's sake, I guess. Sorry, I'm I'm trying to find this code where we where we uh, force the server to use the same connection. My test suite is still running over here, but lots of failures now. We're up to like ten failures. Okay, well that pretty much cinches it. That uh, whatever we did, wherever it's being done, I remember it was something that was just like a super implicit mutex check. Yeah, and all these all these failures that are coming down are like can't find the record with this ID or like because yeah because the transaction has finished and it got cleaned up and. Or actually, no, it just doesn't have it doesn't have access to it because it's running in a different process. And the transaction, different thread, different thread, right? Yeah. So um, therefore, it has a different database connection, right? So anyway, anyway listeners can go out and maybe if they're upgraded, that's a good reason to upgrade to Rails five one. It was one of the reasons like Hub wasn't on Rails five one, and I was like, I want to see if this works, so I upgraded it to Rails five one first, and it was like the reason to do it for me <laughs> it was to see if I could then get rid of database clear. Now, it is kind of like a set it and forget it thing. Once you get the configuration right, you don't really have to worry about it. But it's I like getting rid of dependencies. Yeah. No, and, and definitely running your test inside of a transaction is a much faster and more, I guess, consistent, for lack of a better word, way to ensure that your that your data is, in fact, clean between test runs. I did run into like a small issue when I did this, which was um, this project, I had moved it to use our bin setup script when it runs on CI. Mm-hmm which was totally fine because you run bin setup on CI, but then the first thing your test suite does is start with a database cleaner.clean to make sure that like if the system, if our spec crashed beforehand, it cleans up any data that's there. So it also happens to clean up any of the development seed data that uh, got inserted gotcha. in the database. Uh, but without database cleaner running, when the test kicked off, all of the stuff that happened from bin, all of the like development seed data that bin setup ends up inserting ends up still being there during the test and throws off various tests. Yeah, maybe bin setup shouldn't seed the database. Well, ultimately, I like thought about. I was like, okay, maybe it shouldn't seed the database. Maybe we should only see the database. And like in our bin setup script, we have this limited set of like only do this if you're not on CI. And so I was like, maybe that should be one of the things. But I I don't like to put stuff in there because then that like the point of running the bin setup script on CI is so that you test the bin setup script. Right. And then ultimately, I was like, oh, I know what I do, and I just changed it to like. I changed the circle CI configuration so that it doesn't just run bin setup, it runs Rails env equal development bin setup. And it works. Right? Because it creates a develop that'll create a development and a test database, seed the development okay. database, and then when the tests start up, it's sure. like it's it's exactly like you would do it on your computer. Sure, right? but I also I still don't think you should seed your database from bin setup. I like bin setup to be as idempotent as possible, and seeding the database is inherently not. Well, I like to run that when it's like I just want to go back to square one, right? Sure. So basically, I run DB reset, which, as part of DB reset, I think DB setup is included, which does a DB, which does DB seed, which does seed, yeah. So seeds are one thing, but then there's this develop, then there's development seeds on top of that, and I could argue whether or not you needed development seeds on top of. Well, that. and also like let's say another reason you might want to run it though is like oh, since I last worked on this project, there are like three new dependencies added. And I would like to have those running, but then I also have a development database that I would like to not clobber. Yeah, and on projects that I'm on long enough, I typically end up breaking out the bin setup script into several different things, which are like mm -hmm. bin dependencies. And so like bin setup will call bin dependencies as part of what, so then you could run bin dependencies or bin M file or like, I've been on some projects where they try and like do like, right now our simple bin setup file will be like, does a .m file exist? Then don't do anything. If a .n file doesn't exist, then copy this like sample file over. But then you run into issues where like required keys have been added and they're not in your copy, et cetera, et cetera. So I've seen, I've seen scripts that like try to rectify that difference. 
And I like that. I generally like that approach of building bin setup out of several other smaller things as the project needs evolve. Um, that can, sure. It's like building abstractions, right? <laughs> yeah. Project setup, set up abstractions. Wasn't um, just random thing related to bin files. Wasn't Bundler talking about changing the, the folder it, it puts bin stubs in from bin to exe? No, I don't know. Maybe. Was that the, I, I feel like I remember hearing somebody talking about that. I don't know if it was a thing that ever landed or not. Why? <laughs> the argument being that, that the files in your bin folder aren't binary. They're executable. But <laughs> Ignoring the fact that like your Mac comes with things in slash user slash bin, which are not binary files. <laughs> Bundler template moves bins to exe. Bundler 1.8 moves the executables directory in generated gem specs from bin to exe so that's in that's when you use like bundle gem i think ah like so it gem. won't affect existing gems just any any new right anything that uses bundle uh bundle, in it bundle or gem. bundle gem whatever right. whatever the command is right yeah i think that's the scope of this i assume when you run bundle like i've run bundle bin stub recently and it still dumps a bin stub to the bin folder gotcha okay that's weird on the on that same topic <laughs> Since you were mentioning earlier, changing things for the sake of changing things. <laughs> yeah. I'm reading the, I'm just like scanning the blog post for it. And it says like RSpec, for example, has had its executable in EXE since 2011. So I guess some people have been using EXE for a while anyway. But I don't know. I guess, I mean, that's the kind of thing. Why like, does bin RSpec work? Now I'm confused. Because RSpec, the gem keeping its executables in EXE is different than a bin stub, a client or like a developer generates when they run bundle bin oh stub. i gotcha and it's just putting the exe directory on your path right gotcha okay right and the bin stub is different than that huh. it's just like it creates a shell script basically that you can execute an executable if you will <laughs> now i'm just curious if there's anything nope it's just rbn shims i don't know we'll link to the blog post i've only scanned it so we'll link to it in the show notes it'd be a good read for everybody yeah Sorry, that was just a thing that came to mind. So what else have you been working on? Yeah, so I'm on a new project. I got to run Rails New for the first time in several years. Ooh, uh, as opposed to bin setup? Yep, usually I come on to a, a already existing project. And I had like a, I had a decision to make. So ThoughtBot has Suspenders, which is a like generator for Rails projects. And it predates the time when Rails had like a template system. And it also does some things in addition to what you'd be able to do with Rails templating system. So it's a little, it's a little more heavy-handed than that. And it kind of has like some of our best practice project setup. And also like you're probably gonna need this. So I've added this gem and a configuration for it. And like I'm requiring an environment variable for this. And so like I started off by running suspenders, and then I looked at all the stuff it generated, and I was like, you know, I don't actually need any of this. <laughs> And I've become like through years of like working on projects that I didn't get to generate myself, I've become rather proficient at remembering what's in suspenders and being able mm -hmm. to go to the templates it uses and pull them out and copy them over. So I know what's there <laughs> that I like. And so right. I ended up just running uh, Rails new, except... And then you took RSpec? Yeah. I took the RSpec configuration. I took some like... Email? I, no, I took out the email because this application wasn't going to need. That was one of the things. I was like, I don't even need email. Why do I have all this email ah. set up? I don't like. And like, I'm at the point where I've done enough Rails where I know how to like. I'm not worried where if I like skip the active job framework and later I need active job. How do I like? I know how to put that back. 
right? right? So like I'm not worried about any of that stuff. So I actually ran the Rails new command I ran was like quite lengthy. <laughs> <laughs> skip turbo link. Skip, 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 uh, skip, skip. Yep. Action cable. <laughs> yeah. Action mailer. Let me see if I have the Rails new command I ran. Yeah, so I ran Rails new database equals PostgreSQL. <laughs> yes. Uh, skip keeps, because I don't need that crap. Skip okay. action mailer, skip action cable, skip spring, skip coffee, skip turbo link, skip test, skip system test, skip bundle. <laughs> and then I went okay. in and, and modified the bundle myself. And then I gave it a name. Sure. And that was it. Well, I mean, skip bundle literally just means and don't run bundle install. Right. So there was a bunch of stuff that I do. I was like, wow, this is a very long <laughs> yeah. command that I'm running here. And there yeah. was still stuff that I deleted from that. I don't remember what it was, but I was like, oh, yeah, I also don't need this. I really liked the approach of like, oh, this was good enough. We liked this on projects. All projects should probably have this at some early point, or all projects are likely to have this at some early point in their development. So you should just run suspenders new. And I was like, great, I, I'll run suspenders new or, or whatever. Uh, I think it's just suspenders and then the project name. Yeah. And then I did that. And I was like, I actually don't like this. <laughs> <laughs> and there's been like Mike Burns has been hammering this for a while the idea of like we should make suspenders like I think ultimately if we could do it again suspenders would be one of those rails template things where you can get you can give it a template and that would tell it to use Postgres and things like that and right. then suspenders is something that you would add to your development group and then you would say like suspenders add Heroku suspenders add error tracking suspenders add whatever and sure. it would add like our best patterns for that type of work. Um, I have an idea. What yeah. if you guys added a bunch of skip flags to suspenders? <laughs> <laughs> Those are pull requests that come in often, like or like um I think there's an open pull request now for like like we decided a while ago that we preferred for projects preferred uh circle CI to Travis. We still support, we still prefer Travis for open source work because it's matrix. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think circle CI has anything like the build matrix. You could probably do it now that CircleCI has 2.0, has their 2.0 platform with various Docker containers or whatever, but I haven't looked into it. It's pretty simple in Travis with the matrix. Sure. So we made the change that like, yeah, when you gen when you run a suspenders project, you're going to get a CircleCI template. So you can run the thing on CircleCI. So somebody opened a pull request that was like, allow you to configure different providers. And like, if this were a library, I would be like, yeah, cool. You should be able to, but like, I don't want to be responsible for maintaining a configuration for... Sure. No, and, and, and it doesn't make sense for that either because the whole point of suspenders is it's what ThoughtBot uses right, except, for their projects. Except as I'm pointing out, it's not necessarily. <laughs> well, we other than when you're not using it. But it's not like, oh, but you're not using it because you want to do something different instead of what suspenders gave you. It's because you're not using that feature at all. Right. My use case for suspenders is more like I want a template to go back and look at and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's how I did that. Like, right. uh, what's that line I need for like the, the one of the questions I remember asking was like, what's that line I need so that strong parameters raises when there's a invent when there's a bad parameter? Oh, okay. Here it is. Copy and paste that. Right. Or uh, how do I make translations raise again? Oh, okay. Here it is. <laughs> that kind of thing. All the things aren't those all defaults in production? Um, I wouldn't want strong parameters to raise in production. I would you want, wouldn't? No. Huh. Okay. Why would you want strong parameters to raise in production? Because the only reason it would ever it would ever be going off is because of either a bug or somebody trying to hack the application. Right, and somebody trying to hack the application is frequent enough and harmless enough for the most part that like I don't I, give a shit if they see a five hundred though. Or also like consider the situation where well, but I I care if they see a five hundred and I get it in my error tracker, and it's an yeah. inactionable five hundred, right? 
Nate, who we also frequently subtweet on this podcast. <laughs> uh, he had a post on Twitter where he was asking for people's opinion on a change he wanted to make to Sentry, which was like the list of exceptions to be ignored by default. Right. Anything that was a anything that was a four XX error code have that right. be ignored. Right. And so that included strong parameters type stuff. And that was the one that I kind of because uh. that generates a four twenty two maybe. Or... Yeah, unprocessable entity, I think. Yeah. And so he tried to like t trace through and figure out what, and that like strong parameters was the strong parameter related errors were the ones I was like, mm, if I hit these, I in production, I probably want to know about these, I guess. Although I guess you don't hit those in production since the default yeah. is not to raise. Right. Or at least it is in my projects. <laughs> yeah. And the reason being like, if for whatever reason I add a new field to an existing form and I, for some reason, don't add test coverage for that field and i miss the fact that there's a uh now there's an unpermitted parameter that i'm sending that's a bug it's a bug but i don't know yeah i guess i probably would want to be alerted to that immediately there are definitely use cases that like it's a case-by-case -case kind of thing like if i add date of birth to the user signup form and all of a sudden all of my user signups fail with a 422 error rather than just going through and silently ignoring the date of birth field right like you have to decide which one of those is worse. Like I, I mean, I think there's an argument to be made that like just let user signups continue, and we'll figure out the date of birth thing when we think when we're like, why are all these users' date of birth not happening? Well, so now we're getting into the realm of like you could also argue, well, then you should be using MySQL instead of Postgres because sometimes MySQL will just silently drop data instead of erroring. <laughs> You're so hard on MySQL <laughs> or Mongo, actually. Yeah, there we matter. go. We'll go with Mongo. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I would just prefer to add the test coverage, <laughs> right? right. Try not to forget to add the test coverage, but right. In which, in which case, it'll, it shouldn't error in production unless somebody is trying to hack your application. Right, and if it's an existing form, like even if you leave that field blank, it should uh, still come through as a parameter. Yeah, it, case, it'll come through right. as an empty string. Right. All right, I'm with you. Anyway, so all those errors, I, I kind of supported, like, because I've seen enough error trackers where that stuff just hangs out there forever. Another one that, like, I guess early on in a project, I almost always want to know about everything because right. the number of users are so low that it's easy to manage. But the minute, like, a site gets discovered by bots, it's like, I don't care about any, I don't care about routing right, errors. Now you don't care about I don't care about 404. I don't care about, like, <laughs> so the set yeah. of stuff that I care about changes. And I guess, I guess I'd be okay with defaulting to the set of things that I will care about six months down the road rather than starting with a, with having to remember to like go back and add those things to the error tracker or come onto a project that has an overwhelmed error tracker and try and be like, no, we need to start ignoring these things. And yes, there might be actual programming errors in here, but the noise is so loud that it's right. completely worthless to find. No, and, that, and, and I remember which one it was. I replied that there was something that results in a 400 code that sometimes, I think it might have been 404, like sometimes you are getting those as a result of a, of a programmer error, but it's basically impossible to distinguish yeah. programmatically like, did this 404 happen because of a bug or did it happen because a bot is crawling the site or because users are clicking on things that they deleted. Right. So it definitely makes sense to only track 500 by default. Speaking of um, server errors, I had a I had a funny interaction on Twitter yesterday. Not really funny, but just I don't know. I found it amusing. I got an a, a, a HTC Vive, mm -hmm. and I was trying to set it up, and it needs me to sign in with an account in order to install the software. And so I tried to log in with my Steam account because they have a couple of different OAuth integrations, and uh, it comes back to just a blank white page that says "server error" and nothing else. <laughs> and so I tweet at HTC Help, and I'm like, "Yo." 
I can't install the software because uh, your OAuth endpoint is 500-ing. <laughs> they reply, can you try in a different browser? Like, that's not how <laughs> server errors work. Oh, I see. Can you try clearing your cookies? That's not how server errors work. Oh, but it could be. Come on. You know that it could be, especially okay, the cookies be, thing. Could, no, it absolutely could be uh, like they're doing, well, it's still not my fault. It's what they're doing with my cookies. But uh, yeah, no, clearing cookies, I could totally see that making a difference other than that I had never been to this website before. So there was no way that they had a uh, cookie for me. Right. Did you get it installed? Yes, there are other OAuth integrations. <laughs> no, uh, their other OAuth integrations were less broken. Okay, but not completely unbroken, just less broken. If one of them is broken, I, I refuse to believe that any of them are completely not broken. <laughs> I saw your uh, your tweet about your first experience with your HTC banging my head into the floor. Five. Yeah. <laughs> so what exactly? So there was a hole. Yeah, so I was on the floor, there was a panel, I lift up the panel, and then there was a hole in the floor, and I wanted to see what was in the hole, so I tried sticking my head in the hole. Shockingly, there was a floor there, because <sighs> VR does not magically create holes in my floor, and so I hit my head really hard on my floor. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to have a video of that. <laughs> I just think watching, pe watching people play VR is better than playing VR in many cases uh and i think that that would be one of those i'd be like what what's what's he what's he doing and then <laughs> yeah congratulations it's, a, uh, it's an immersive piece of technology i will give them that <laughs> have you been enjoying it though uh, you know other than you know banging your head on the floor yeah yeah cool. i played with it some more this this morning Cool. And yeah, I don't know. It, it's one of those things like I was playing a game called The Talos Principle, which I've played before, but they just released a VR version this week. And it was one of the things where I just like mundane pieces of like scenery. I would continuously like stop and be like, oh, I can just like look around, you know, like actually interact with this random piece of scenery that's always been there. But now I don't know when there's just a random headless statue, but you feel like you're actually standing next to the giant headless statue. Right. Suddenly, the headless statue is really interesting. <laughs> yeah. And there was one thing I was doing where, like, it had you standing sort of on the edge of a cliff. And I'm, I'm a little afraid of heights, so I actually, like, started to look over and was like, oh, I need to turn off this game now. Yeah, that wouldn't go well for me. I'm very much afraid of heights. <laughs> yeah. It's a little jarring when you die in a game in VR, though. If you die in VR, do you die in real life? <laughs> no, but I mean, like, when a thing comes at you and explodes, and now all of a sudden it's actually in your face, it, it's very, like, jarring. I can imagine that if the experience was, uh, particularly if it was immersive enough, I haven't really done anything other than, like, holding the phone up to your face kind of stuff. Right. Which was, like, meh, whatever. And this uh, is definitely a solid step above that <laughs> in terms of immersiveness. Cool. All right. Do you have anything else? What else should we talk about? We talk about Balloon Fiesta. Oh, how was Balloon Fiesta? I saw some photos. It was great. Do you, do you remember Joanne? She used to work yeah, in the yeah, office. Yeah, of course. Of course I remember. Yeah, she came out to visit. So she was out here this weekend and we all went to Balloon Fiesta. I started paying I started paying attention more to uh, the countries that all the balloons were from. Because you can tell there's uh, a call sign on the side of the balloon. And it'll always be a letter, hyphen, a bunch of other letters and or numbers. Mm-hmm. I only I only started looking at it because I, I thought it was funny. There were some there were some penguin balloons and their call sign is Gwyn's. G hyphen U I N S and then the other and then the other penguin is the same thing but with a Z. <laughs> but it turns out that if the first letter is G, that means that the balloon was made in the UK. And okay. if the first if the first section it's actually not necessarily always one letter because Brazil is P P, 
Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's also a lot of balloons that were made in Brazil, which I found interesting. I think those were really the only two that I know. Once I started looking for it, I'm like, oh, there's a lot of balloons here from the UK or from uh, Brazil. Not not necessarily meaning that the balloon is the owner lives there or that, you know, it it frequently flies there, but that's where it was made. So that's where the balloon was manufactured. Yeah. I believe Cameron kind of the main balloon supplier. I believe they do all their manufacturing in the U S did you get to go in a balloon this year? I did not. No, I did not go flying this year. Mm. Do you own a balloon? Will you, will you shortly own a balloon? Uh, probably next year. Yeah. I'm going to buy, I'm going to buy one. A balloon is a thing that you, so it's not like an airplane where you're like, I own a piece of this airplane. You you just like buy a balloon and a basket and yep. And you store that at your house somewhere and, uh, you store it in a trailer. Okay. Just like a little, like, you know, you know, the little tiny U-Haul trailers, like the smallest size that you can get. Mm -hmm. That's like almost a cube, but maybe a little longer. Yep. Basically a trailer that size. The envelope is rough when when it's stored is roughly the same size as the basket. It goes into a giant bag. Yeah. So roughly two basket sizes of storage is what you need. And you put that you just have that in a trailer. And we always just kept the trailer in our driveway. If you had a large enough backyard, could you just like, I'm going to go for a balloon flight now? Or what are the regulations on this? So I actually don't know. As long as it's safe, I don't think there's any reason that you wouldn't be allowed to launch from your backyard. Uh, generally, you need to fly 1,000 feet over the nearest building in a half mile radius and 500 feet over the nearest building in a one mile radius. Okay. Uh, and beyond that, it's basic. The regulation is basically like, don't do dangerous things. Okay. So like in a small area, you'd be fine somewhere around like 1,500 feet. Yeah. I mean, nobody actually flies as high as we're supposed to. Oh, okay. All right. Um, but I, f- I feel like I used to see more balloons around. I haven't seen balloons in a while. They're still, they're definitely still around here. Although they have been, they've been scaling back balloon fiesta because they're running out of places to land. Mm. Uh, so it used to be, uh, over a thousand and now it's only about 750 balloons. Hmm. How do you get in? You just pay to fiesta. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're going to fly your balloon. Oh, to fly your balloon. Yeah, if there's a competitive number of slots. Is it like a charity thing? How does this work? <laughs> I've never flown for Balloon Fiesta, so uh, I don't know if there's a fee or not. Because I, I don't have a commercial license. I've never had a commercial license. And you, you have to be a commercial pilot to fly a Fiesta. Oh, uh, okay. So I don't know, actually, how that process goes. I know that you get the codes to the gates when you get your pilot's license. Because people take off from there not during Fiesta. Hmm. Cool. But yeah. I don't know. It's one of the things like it's surprisingly easy to get a pilot's license. It's actually easier than getting a driver's license. It's roughly the same process, though. Take a written test, get a provisional permit, fly 10 hours with a licensed pilot, have them sign your flight book, take another written exam. Hmm. And it's all it's all self-administered by I mean, it's by people who are licensed by the FAA, but who aren't necessarily like part of the FAA. Right. And then it seems like the ballooning community here just generally has an agreement with the FAA of like if somebody in a neighborhood is complaining about noise, don't fly around that neighborhood for a couple of weeks. Don't land at the airport. <laughs> and as long as people do that, the FAA mostly leaves us alone. Uh, landing on a runway would be... <laughs> you, you, so you legally have the right to. It, it is public property. Wait, what? You legally have the right to land at an airport. Stop it. Yeah. So if I have my own, if I have my own airplane, I can just, yeah. be, I just like contact the tower and be like, what, run, what runway am I landing yep. on? But I'm, I mean, you know, okay. they're going to have they're going to have to you're going to have to wait until they clear until they clear you to land and you'll right. have to file a flight plan with them. But right. you can just do that. Is this one of those things where like I could land, but then I wouldn't be able to disembark anywhere because the gates aren't public land? And, like, oh, no, <laughs> no, not, no, that's not at all. No. So they'll just get really mad at you. OK, 
because I'm not a commercial airliner that has like right. a financial relationship with the airport. Well, it's more balloons in particular. Uh, like we're going to be clogging up that runway for a good while. Right. We don't get to just roll away. <laughs> right. And so it's not just like, okay, it's slightly annoying to get you onto a runway. It's like they're going to have to divert commercial airlines. They'll be like, you can land at two in the morning. Just hang around. <laughs> right. But so that's the thing. They have to land you, in, you know, in a reasonable period of time. And balloons, basically, when you say I need, I'm looking to land, they have to land you right away. More or less. And in, in aviation, the least maneuverable aircraft has the right of way. Right. There is no aircraft less maneuverable than a hot air balloon. <laughs> All right. I can't wait to get your own balloon and land it at the airport. <laughs> no, every year there's some idiot who lands at the airport during Fiesta and it's a mess. <laughs> yeah, balloons are fun, though. All right. Let me know when you get your balloon. I'll come watch you from the ground. <laughs> okay. Didn't you say you're afraid of heights? Yeah, not, not in a balloon, though. I don't know why. I'm not afraid of heights in a plane, but I think I'd be very afraid of heights in a balloon for some reason. I don't know. I I grew up in balloons, so. <laughs> grew up in balloons. Balloon my school. mom was continuously pointing out to me all weekend that my first balloon ride was when I was three days old. Oh. Nice. I was actually surprised how, how good Ruby was around the fiesta because most babies, when the burners start going, they start flipping out and Ruby is just like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> cool. Oh, that one's cool, too. Okay, I'm going back to sleep now. <laughs> If anybody wants to come next year, it is always the first two weekends of October, and it's it's definitely a thing to see at some point in your life. All right. With that, should we wrap up? Sure. All right. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 130. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time.